This is Our Prisons the Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Besterman and Leo Hilton. Today we are talking with Marian Anderson, a campaign organizer with the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, and also a host of Justice Radio. And Jeff Evangelos, a former Maine state legislator and fierce advocate for a fair criminal legal system. I'm Leo Hilton, and I come to this show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine at Colby College and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of five years. And I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. For the past year and a half, Leo and I have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? Today's show follows the themes that we've been exploring for the past three episodes of Are Prisons the Answer? Namely, how do we effect actual transformative change in the criminal legal system? We've learned recently um, on the past couple of shows about how the history of whiteness has shaped the history of carcerality in Maine and elsewhere. We've learned about the systemic injustices in our criminal legal system that lead to the hyperincarceration, in particular of people of color. And we've learned about hyperincarceration, how we use prisons to address social problems like poverty, substance use disorder, trauma, mental illness, houselessness. So Marian Anderson and Jeff Evangelos, you have each been in the forefront of the fight to transform the way we do justice in Maine. So we're gonna ask you first to tell us who you are and what's been your experience in fighting for criminal legal reform and or prison abolition in Maine. Marion, can we start with you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Catherine. Uh, Leo, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I've done uh, six years in, in the Maine Department of Corrections and uh, probably about as much time in county jails across the state. And I actually came to this work through harm reduction. And I think for me, that is the foundation of abolition, is reducing the harm. Um, that is caused, uh, whether interpersonally or systemically. Moving into this work from from a space of harm reduction, um, it was an easy transition uh, for me, but my experience in abolition, uh, to sum it up, has been exhausting. You know, we're we're up against um, a very well-oiled machine that uh, chews people up and, and spits them out. It doesn't leave a lot of room for uh, trans transformation for healing. Often people come out of system of prison industrial complex uh, much, much worse off than, than they were when they went in. And so for me, most importantly in my experience is the connection that I make with folks across Maine and, and across the U.S. really. That's where it starts. It's about connection for me. It's about having conversations about things that matter. Fantastic, Marion. Thank you so much. Jeff Evangelist, let's come to you next. Tell us who you are and what's been your experience in fighting for criminal legal reform and or prison abolition in Maine. Well, um, Jeffrey Evangelos, um, I served as a legislator. Um, thank you, Catherine and Leo, and I'm honored to be on the panel with Marion. Um, I was on the Judiciary Committee uh, for six years, and that is that in the Criminal Justice Committee, um, but primarily the Judiciary Committee uh, is witness uh, to um, a lot of the inequities in our uh, current criminal justice system, which, you know, you're there at first and, um, and then having been and still am a 
what I refer to as a 1960s uh, leftist radical. Um, I never abandoned those roots. Um, coming to realize um, that in a uh, very unjust country, um, when it comes to incarceration, Maine um, is scoring in last place in all of the reform metrics. I agree with exactly what Marion said. I forget the word she used, but meat grinder or something. But but, uh, but uh, it is, and uh, this that system gets a hold of you. It'll ruin your life. And I just I know that we're going to have some questions, but very briefly, everyone listening needs to know. I'm stunned by the governor's budget, which calls for a forty-five million dollar increase in corrections. It's a ten percent increase in corrections, and a stunning. 170% increase in policing. This is a stunning number. The budget will be 127 million for policing, up $80 million in the uh, lead story in the main beacon. So when you create this kind of a monster, um, you know, way more police, I mean, inevitably it's gonna, you know, keep multiplying the problem. I did recently file a massive complaint with the United States Justice Department, uh, which included our incarceration system and the racial disparities, violation of civil rights. We've never had a felony exoneration in the history of the state of Maine. That's from the New England Innocence Project. That's a stunning number. And we've never held a police officer accountable for shooting people 188 to zero, even when they're unarmed even when they might be in a mental health crisis or a, a wellness check. But anyways, I turn my activism towards uh, reform. Everybody needs to go to the straight prison once in their life, uh, the women's prison or the men's prison in Warren, because it's a life-transforming event. Um, I urge my colleagues on the parole commission, study commission, to go to the prisons. We had four meetings there. I went to all four. I mean, just... Being with the women was just difficult, really difficult to hear the stories, their lives, how unjust the sentences are. Uh, so I worked in resentencing reform. We're working on parole, working on post-conviction reform. I won't go any further because I, I can answer what I'm encountering for resistance. But yes, um, that's my background. And then I just became more radicalized. I found my voice and I said, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to push on. And Catherine, you probably saw some of the hearings where they tried to silence me repeatedly for talking justice. I had lawyers writing me and calling me saying how embarrassing it was times they tried to shut me down. But anyways, ready to move on with the uh, next part of the interview. Oh, that is amazing. And thank you both for the work that you've done um, and continue to do because it is much needed. So I'd like to follow up with a question on what has worked from your experience, what has worked, what has not worked, and what have you learned in the process? We'll cycle back to you, Marion, first. Thanks, Leo. You know, I think it just takes me back to what I said previously about connection, right? Uh, the conversations that that I have with folks who are around me, whether that's, you know, my neighbor or somebody in the state house, you know, for me, that's what works. Uh, lots of people don't know what this system is, what the system does, how we perpetuate it, how we uphold it, and how it impacts um, generations <laughs> to come. 
you know, people just are not aware. Uh, I think we've become really good at uh, distracting ourselves with everything else in this world. Um, and and so, you know, when I when I talk to folks, you know, specifically around things that have that are happening here. <clears throat> Close to me at home, I live in Bangor, and um, you know Penobscot County Jail. County Penobscot County is trying to propose a, a new jail, right? And it comes with a with a crazy price tag. And I want to thank Jeff for bringing up the the budget, the governor's budget. Um, you know Penobscot County has tried to use ARPA monies, COVID monies, to you know propose uh, an expansion on the jail of more than hundred beds. But now there's talk of of a new jail entirely. But when I'm having the conversations with the folks in Penobscot County, they have no idea, right, that uh, Penobscot County commissioners want to spend upwards of $70 million <laughs> um, to to build a new jail, to to put, you know, I think capacity right now is 150 something. There's typically 200 people there on, on a day to day basis. So they're, they're overcrowded. Uh, but building a bigger jail is not the answer, right? arresting less people is the answer. Like Maine is one of like the states in the U.S. that has the lowest crime rates. Like, what are we doing? Why are we spending $418 million in the DOC budget and, you know, approving proposals for $70 million new jails in a, in a county? Like, it's absurd. And so when I talk to folks, uh, that's what works, right? Getting getting that awareness out there, letting folks know what's going on in your community, having those conversations and bringing it back to interpersonal connection, building community. That's what works. When people come together, things change. You know, I think what doesn't work is, is doing all of this work in silos, right? There's a lot of good folks out here in Maine doing really good work, but um, often I have observed that they don't do it together. You've got nonprofits vying for money out of that first budget, right? And you have people vying for that money and having to having to like stand in opposition with one another to receive those funds and it creates silos and everybody's doing this work, you know, in various parts of the state, but that isn't working. Coming together and figuring out how how we build community and how we have these conversations and how we choose to invest in our community is what works. And I think um you know, Jeff bringing up that governor's budget, it's just, it's insane to me that we spend so much money investing into these systems that just tear people apart, tear, tear families apart, tear communities apart, right? And not just here and now today, but, you know, generationally. Thanks for asking, Leo. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Jeff, from your experience, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and what have you learned in the process? In agreement with Marion, what will work is converting those conversations into a mass movement. It has to become a mass movement. Um, and I know that we might be discussing quotes that Michael Cabetta had, but what I attempted to do when actually my bills passed, 90% of them, it was um, as an independent, uh, a, a leftist independent. And when I say leftist progressive, I don't refer to the current movement as too much of the politically correct baggage and wokeness. I'm talking about the 1960s movement, civil rights, anti-war, women's rights, Native American rights, the entire package. I introduced very, very uh, progressive, aggressive legislation uh, on post-conviction reform, on parole. We've got innocent people in prison who can't get a hearing. Imagine that if you're a parent. 
and you have a son and daughter sitting in a cell for something they didn't do. And we have arcane provisions of law that don't even allow for a hearing. So I, uh, what worked for me was I just had very few people in Augusta that would help me because the issues are controversial and there's a moderate conservative block of the Democratic Party that is afraid of their own shadow. And my Judiciary Committee was comprised of many of them. I just rammed them through. I went to the press and the press is my friend. I always answer their questions. Even on a bad day, you take the call and show them respect. And they came through for me. And I mean, even without asking, the papers were editorializing for my ideas. And my bills passed. But then what didn't work was we have an attorney general who um, blocked 80% of the reforms. He blocked the Innocence Project bill that would allow for a hearing. He blocked the resentencing bill that could address injustices to people like Leo. We are the most harshest sentencing state in the union. This is documented. And our, the prison policy initiative gave Maine an F minus. The listeners need to know this in part of what Marion's saying. You know, when you're talking to people, uh, the, one of the magazines that once interviewed me was saying, well, Maine, you know, it can't be, it can't be this idyllic image. And I said, no, that's, that's the problem. Our image doesn't fit the reality. I said, think Shawshank Redemption, think Stephen King, you know, uh, that's where we are. It's a vicious, vicious criminal justice system uh, with people at the highest levels of the attorney general's office who are uh, committing acts of uh, systemic inherent systemic bias, which uh, leads to this mass incarceration, overcharging people, you know, refusing to uh, enforce justice, not telling the truth, never admitting when they're wrong. So what is going to work besides mass mobilization is getting some people with some guts that are willing to confront it and to follow through on it all the way. And you have to be fearless. And, um, you know, you can't have people refusing to go and visit prisons and talking to people uh, who are the victims of, of, of this assault uh, on humanity, basically, um, you've got to open up the lines of communication. You know, every legislator who deals with any of these issues should go to prisons and, and listen. Those listening sessions, I'll tell you, they were awesome. State prison had almost 200 men and the, they needed the gymnasium, right, Leo? So, yes, we did. Uh, yeah. And the one with the women was so touching. I think the biggest thing we could do immediately, and this is an easy, easy fix, is return to the um, the weekend the weekend furloughs, so that um, incarcerated people can maintain connections to their children, to their families. So we interrupt that cycle that Marion's talking about. So mom and dad are home uh, some of the time. And it's an incredibly uh, progressive uh, act of wellness to make sure that sons and daughters d don't get into a bad cycle, not, a not allowing the parents to go home on weekends once they do what they need to do for their programming and stuff uh, is just inhumane, as is our prison sentencing. So Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. The, the real challenge is going to be a mass movement with a change in leadership and people. We need, we need the right people. There's so few voices really, you know, in Augusta, people like Marion and the, uh, the people, the activists, they're there. Uh, but we need to, we need to change the laws and the behaviors. 
Nice. Thank you. Yes. And so much of this comes back to the need for a community base of this. And so again, thank you both for the work that you're doing and we're going to take a short break. This is Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Bestman and Leo Hilton. Today, we are talking with Marion Anderson of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls and a host of Justice Radio and Jeff Evangelos, a former Maine State legislator and fierce advocate for a fair criminal legal system. In our last episode, Michael Cabetta suggested that we need a fourth revolution to actually bring into being a legal system that would work equitably and justly following the American Revolution, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Week, each of which were revolutionary in their own way. So in your opinion, do we need a fourth revolution? It sort of sounds like that's where you're leading us, Jeff. And if so, what does that look like to you? Marion, we're gonna, we're gonna start with you first. Do we need a fourth revolution? And if so, what does that look like? Oh, it's such a loaded question, Catherine. Uh, immediately, my answer is yes, we do. But I think it becomes difficult to, to answer. What does that look like? Uh, part of me says, you know, we have to scrap this whole damn thing, right? Like we need the people to rise up and to take back their power and um, to overthrow this government. Like, what are we doing? Why, why are we treating, <laughs> why are we putting people in cages? Why are we treating our people this way? You know, so when I think about historically what has happened that has been revolutionary, um, you know, I think it needs to top that. But then there's another voice in me that says, the revolution can be quiet and I see it happening all around me in small, in small ways, in various places, communities coming together, not relying on police, not relying on systems that perpetuate harm, building cooperative businesses, uh, sustaining funding outside of the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, there are revolutionary acts happening. It's just, we don't know about it, right? <laughs> we don't know that it's happening. That's why it's so important to know what is happening, right? Because we can get involved. We can find small ways to plug in to these revolutionary acts. You know, there, there are tons of programs that are coming to mind that are happening across the U.S., you know, Um there's there's whole communities of of folks. I mean, black and brown folks have been doing it forever, right? They don't. <laughs> I don't know, lots of their communities are not calling the cops. Um, but you know, there's there's crisis lines. There's uh, folks to call outside of of policing when when something is happening and harm is being done. Um, you know, there's uh, response units. <clears throat> there's transformative justice hubs, circles, healing practices. Leo, you do some of this work, right? It's revolutionary. So, so part of me says it has to be really big and really loud. And, and part of me says that it's already happening quietly and perhaps where you live and you just don't know it. Thank you, Marion. That's so uplifting. Jeff, what about you? Do we need a fourth revolution? And if we do, what does it look like to you? Well, I think we need to uh, briefly examine um, the failures of the first three. The first, the American Revolution uh, enshrining uh, slavery discrimination, genocide against our Native Americans. Women waited 140 years to vote. 
it was a good revolution for the rich white guys. The Civil War, immediately after the war, the federal troops occupied the South, and real change began to occur, and uh, integration was actually uh, occurring. But they cut a deal at the election of 1876. The federal troops went home. Um, the Jim Crow era took over, and we got tenant farmers, sharecroppers, uh, slavery in another name, and the incarceration system that went along with all of that. I participated in the, the third revolution and um, 1960s primarily, and 1963 to 1968, and we were well on our way. We confronted a, a lot of huge issues, which boiled down to incarceration and racial discrimination in incarceration because it was the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, uh, the movement for women's rights, the American Indian movement. I don't mean to leave any others out, um, but those were the, the big four. And, uh, <clears throat> and we had incredible three or four incredible leaders um, around it all. And again, I don't <clears throat> mean to leave anyone out, but we had John F. Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and then 1967 and 68, Robert Kennedy and the War on Poverty. They decapitated our leadership, the national security state. And in 1968, um, the movement collapsed. We lost. It would be <clears throat> easy to say that it all happened because of uh, you know white right-wing Republicans. But the case was in 68, it was the Democratic Party that destroyed the revolution by uh, first Robert Kennedy being murdered by the intelligence agencies. There's no doubt about that. Anyone who takes the time to read on it will read the same fate that happened to him, happened to Dr. King. Something big's gonna have to give. These revolutionary forces are generally unleashed through economic reasons. It's the spark uh, as much as I would hope it would be all of our activism. It's when the economic system breaks down. Uh, sometimes uh, the real change can be effective, uh, such as 1933. That would be like possibly considered a, a slight successful revolution. We got the New Deal, uh, Social Security, guaranteed minimum wage, the right to organize labor. Um, and that came through an economic crisis. But those those opportunities uh, through economic crisis come with great risk because some countries break left and some countries break right. We saw what happened in the 30s. And there is no doubt that the United States is breaking right. There's no question about it. Janet Mills's budget is a breaking right budget. It's a police state budget. So you've got all this irrationality that's out there right now. And... Um, you know, they're governing the American people through fear, addictions, uh, cell phone addictions, drug addictions, and they've pulled down this illusion um, that we live in a free democracy. That ended in 1963, folks. Um, it's, it's been one lie after another. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just going to happen nationally unless something big gives, and I see it as a, a collapse economically that would bring on um, progressive leaders like it happened in 1932. But I will tell you one thing, if it gets bad and nasty, my side doesn't have any guns. The right-wing movement in this country are highly armed, and my side isn't. I'm a peacenik.
And um, those become very, very dangerous times in a country that is going through a transformative shift when power is up for grabs. So that's, uh, you know, how I feel about where we are and how we got there. And I think what did, I wrote it down, uh, Orwell once said, those who control the present control the past. And those that control the past control the future. And what he's talking about is that they, they have, you know, the national security state has framed our belief system around the fact that uh, we're some kind of a functioning democracy when we're not. Political historian, brilliant one, Sherwood Olin, that just died, he was 95 years old, said that the United States had entered the early stages of fascism. And when I see a budget like this, I'm shocked. Mills's budget. When the money going into drug treatment and uh, rehabilitation and, and the things we really need and communications that Marion's talking about all around that to keep people from even, you know, you know, making a wrong step is like two point something million dollars. It's a stunning um, mismatch of priorities that is going to certainly continue the cycle and the resistance that I have encountered uh, at that level. Um, that's why I filed the, the complaint with the Justice Department, because it was hopeless. They're hopeless. They're not going to change. There's people in the Attorney General's office that have been there for 30 to 40 years who are responsible for this abysmal records in the Department of Corrections. Uh, some of our prisons have you know, shiny floors and shiny walls and nice people uh, <clears throat> who are trying, but they're so limited uh, in what they're allowed to do. And they all point towards the go governors as the reason why they won't. And they don't. They don't have the courage to say, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to do the right thing. They back down every time. We have a huge challenge in front of us. I don't know how we get it mass mobilized without an incident, a big one, other than doing the day-to-day -day work that Marion's doing, uh, mobilizing them one, one at a time or a group at a time. It's certainly eye-opening to read this budget and realize how far away, you know, the Democratic Party's objectives are from mine when they're considered to be the progressive force. I mean, it's just not the case. Thanks, Jeff. So from the sounds of it, we need a fourth revolution. And the question is, how do we get there? Um, and we spent some time engaging with that. So Marion Anderson, Jeffrey Evangelos, thank you so much for taking the time to engage with us on these hard topics that so many of us don't even want to approach because of how complex and how difficult they are and how fraught has been the history to, of getting here. And foundationally from what I've pulled away from it is that this needs to be a community-based effort. That in order to interrupt the cycles of violence and harm, we need to come together. We need to have those conversations with our neighbors, with our state representatives, with our senators, that we need some of that good old 1960s activism of honoring the diversity that exists between all of us in order to be able to overcome this dichotomous fight around who gets the money and arguing whether we need to build the prison industrial complex or the nonprofit industrial complex. Well, the answer, from what it sounds like, is we need to ground ourselves in community in order to be able to supersede both. And that the revolution can be quiet and is currently happening in different ways. So Keep your eyes open, keep your ears open and see where it's happening and how you can get involved. So next week, please join Marion Anderson 
for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. We are Justice Radio.